If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 4, we're going to read from verses 1 through to 5, and then from verse 13 to 17. And before we do so, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me, and uh, it should be on the screens behind you also. Let us pray together. O Lord, may the words of our mouth be our daily bread, and may the leading of your Spirit become our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord reading from Romans chapter 4 from verse 1 through to 5 and then on to verse 13 through 17. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be their heirs, the heirs, faith is null, nothing, nada, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. For this reason, the promise depends on faith in order that it may rest on grace. That's what you say, amen. Let me read that again. I love Stephen. For this reason, the promise depends on faith in order that it might rest on grace so that it may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The word of the Lord. Who has most shaped your faith? Who has given you an example of faith? This past week, I was privileged to sit in on the funeral service, the home celebration, homegoing celebration uh, of Stephanie's grandma. And I got to be honest, <laughs> not every funeral encourages. But this one revealed a woman who had had a, a difficult and trying life, and yet found Jesus to be her Savior. 
and in the honesty of what has been recounted, and in the ways in which I was let in on a life well lived. There was no sense of perfection in her. There was no sense that she always got it right. In fact, there's parts to the story that I don't know, but this came out and was abundantly clear. Jesus was her Savior, and His grace was sufficient for her. I wonder if we start our text or our review of this text by thinking carefully about how our faith has been shaped. Who has been instrumental in the kind of faith that you are practicing today? Today, I am not always going to go according to the script. Don't be nervous. But I wondered if we would take just a few minutes to share with one another, those who are bold enough, and I am really counting on the extroverts, if you would very briefly just tell us who most shaped your faith and why. Can you say that with me? Who most shaped your faith and why? Here's the rule. Do not take the microphone from Lauren. It's Lauren's microphone. This is not your moment to shine. But this is your moment to give a testimony. So I'm going to invite my daughter to come real quick. She was not prepared for this, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) So if you want to raise your hand, who has most shaped your faith and why? She will bring the microphone right to you. And if you... Mute her right now, please, just mute her. (laughs) Who'd like to go? Right in the back there. My grandmother, and the reason is that she just depicts who I think Jesus Christ is to me and to those who were around her. Thank you, Jennifer. If you would just tell us your name as well, we're always still getting to know each other, and then answer the question. Hi, my name is Jolene, and who shaped my faith is my extended family here at Skyview, and also the family I married into, the Kirbys. Amen. And and, and your pastor. And my pastor. (laughs) I'm just just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right behind you, right there. My name is Jordan Biernick, and my grade 7 teacher was Marlette Reed. And uh, she just always just uh, was a woman of faith and such a powerful uh, testimony that she always gave. And just her, um, her life was a, an example of faith and really inspired me. Amen. We'll go maybe on this side. I know you love Jesus too. Anyone here? This is the reserved side right here. Can you make me wait awkwardly? No one? Right here in the front. God bless you, John Henderson. I I don't know if this is the person who shaped my faith most, but I'll tell you one thing I remember. There was an elderly gentleman named Howard Griffin who always gave me a warm, firm handshake and a smile. (laughs) Thank you. I think that's it, Lauren. Well done. You did really well with the microphone. Thank you. Israel's faith was shaped 
by a very dynamic person in their history named Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God. He was not chosen necessarily because of any credentials or because he had uh, some special status. God chose him for purpose. And as the uh, story of Scripture unfolds, the people of God that comes as offspring from Abraham struggle with what it means to live a life of faith. In fact, when Jesus comes, they struggle with understanding what it means to be the people of faith. In fact, historians and the Bible itself teaches us that they struggled so much that they didn't know how to include others and how to relate to others who too were trying to follow this Messiah Jesus that showed up. The problem for them was that the example of faith as coming from Abraham was so particular to them as a people that they found it hard to think about how to include others. They were so certain of their choosingness or their chosenness that when those came along that did not share their Jewish heritage, they didn't quite know how to receive them. And so, the Bible teaches us a few things historically. First, when God started to move amongst non-Jews named Gentiles, which most of us, if not all of us are, and they started to become followers of Jesus, the Jewish church struggled with what that would mean. And this is what they said, we think you need to become Jewish in order to belong. You need to be grafted in to Abraham through two things. First, you need to learn how to obey the Torah. You need to learn how to follow the laws of God. And by the time of Jesus, there was estimated 613 statutes incorporated in all that they thought the Torah meant. The second thing that they said, you Gentiles, if you want to be a part of this community of faith, have to become circumcised. For we remember what happened to Abraham. Abraham was a man who believed God and he was circumcised and therefore he is an example of faith to us. And so, you need to obey the Torah and you need to be circumcised. And then there's a story in Acts where Peter, who was a devout Jew and follower of Jesus, is led by God's Spirit into the home of a Gentile. And in the home of a Gentile named Cornelius, a Roman centurion, the Holy Spirit that fell upon the Jewish disciples in Jerusalem falls on Cornelius and his entire household. And in that moment, Peter sees what the church needs to see, that from the outset God had always intended to include not only the Jews, but everyone. But the church back in Jerusalem was not yet caught up. So they sent news, and they said, Peter, what are you doing? 
You're in the home of a Gentile? What are you doing? Traversing this territory that you're not supposed to traverse? What are you doing? And here's what Peter says. I now see that God is indeed no respecter of person, but by his choosing has chosen to include even the Gentiles. I think that for us today, the challenge might not be as obvious, but there is a sense in which this text teaches us something really important. That our example of faith will determine the kinds of people we will become and the kind of community we will be. And if the Holy Spirit witnesses to the believing church that God's plan has not just been for some, but for everyone, it will challenge us all to rethink the ways in which we prescribe what people need to be in order for people to belong. And we become a people convinced of this, that the best examples of faith are those who humbly realized that God chose them not because they were good enough, but because they needed God. That's my preamble. Abraham was considered to be an exemplar of faith because many in the Roman church believed that he adhered to the law in a perfect way. They believed that Abraham was justified, a big theological word, because he led a blameless life. They believed that he upheld the law in a way that they all were to aspire to. But their thinking, Paul says, was wrong for two reasons. First, at the time of Abraham, there was no Jewish law. In fact, the law would not be presented to the people for a few hundred years. Paul reminds them, that Abraham didn't become right with God because somehow he upheld the code. Paul tells them that Abraham was chosen by God, that God justifies the ungodly. Before Abraham was a Hebrew, before Abraham was a Jew, before Abraham was anything, God acted to call him unto himself. It is this God who the Apostle Paul says, blesses whom he chooses and through Jesus Christ chooses to bless all who would put their faith in him. And some said, well, uh, that's all good and fine, no law, but perhaps circumcision is the way to be included in the family of God. And there were some in the early church that insisted, unless you're circumcised and all God's men says, praise God, we don't practice that necessarily today. <laughs> Before you come into fellowship, you have to go through this ceremony in order to fit in, to belong. And Paul says, neither the Torah nor circumcision gets you in. Nothing you do makes you inherit this grace. Not becoming something that God has not planned for you gets you in. 
Now, at this point, some of you are wondering where I'm going with this. I I think it's a very simple place this morning. It's simply to say this. Some of us struggle to believe the story of God as a story of grace, and we've been trying. We've been trying to save ourselves through the many things we think we need to do in order to find favor with God. Some of us have not experienced the liberating grace of God that does not come on account of whether we have lived a particular way, that we have done the right things, but is offered to us as grace. And if you do not get the grace of God, the temptation is to become a person that judges others on criteria that God himself does not hold against them, but invites them to come and receive his grace also. If you are not saved by grace, two things happen. One, you are tempted to become legalistic, counting all the rules and judging everybody else by your standard. Or two, when you fail because no one kept 613 statutes, You live in shame, thinking that you're never good enough to be who God has called you to be. Grace. Grace. You see, the Apostle Paul, whenever he taught the church, was not teaching them abstract theology like we tend to do. You know, sometimes we ask questions of the text that the text never seeks to answer. Our forensic analysis of the text often comes at the cost of a true and genuine understanding that all that is happening in Scripture is pointing to one person as hope and Savior. That is Jesus Christ. That all that we as human beings endure and go through, that all that we carry, that all that bothers and burdens, that all that keeps us from the kind of life that God has made possible through Christ can be overcome only by responding to the one who gives himself to us in faith. That faith is not work in this sense, that it earns us God's grace. Grace is given, and we have the opportunity to respond. In fact, the Christian faith is ultimately a response to the love of God. I grew up in a, a church in which there was high levels of scrutiny upon my lifestyle as a pastor's kid. I don't know if you've ever heard this. They say that uh, the reason why parishioners' kids are naughty is because they hang out with the pastor's kids. It's not true. At least I don't think it's true. I, I, I was conditioned from an early age to measure this Christianity and God's goodness to me based upon my goodness to God. I want you to hear me because this may sound simple, but this is profoundly important for us. There are some of us who have not been saved by grace. 
we have been trying to save ourselves. When Paul speaks to the church, he says the reason you're struggling to include others is because your perspective on who God is is twisted. The way that you think about who He is and how He selects and chooses others, the way in which you think people need to ready themselves for God's grace is wrong. And the reason you don't get it, because you don't get grace yet. You don't understand that it's not because you're Jewish that you're saved by grace. It's not because Abraham is your father that you're saved by grace. But it is because Abraham learned something important. Even though he was unworthy, there was a God who chose him. And since that time, God has chosen those who are unworthy to belong to him. And the only response to him is to give God thanks for Jesus. To say, Lord, I've tried in my own strength. I've tried for so long. I don't seem to get anywhere. Simpson sin still seems to have a grasp over me. I still look at others, and I'm, I don't look at them with the optimism of your love and grace. I perhaps judge them. God, I, I, I find that my Christianity feels burdensome and onerous and heavy and restrictive. I find that my Christianity is small and doesn't speak to the reality of a broken world. Part of why we don't understand these things is because we have yet to explore the depths of God's grace for us. A grace that is not only saving, but a grace that opens our eyes to the ways of God. A grace that is not only liberating so that sin may not have power over our life, but a, a grace that fills us with the love of God for a broken world so that we only want to do this one thing, is extend this grace liberally and freely so that all may put their faith in the one who is able to take care of the burdens of sin and of our life and to redeem us by his blood. There is no other reason to talk about Jesus if we have not experienced Jesus as the lover who comes ahead of us and says, irrespective of everything in your life, the good and the bad, I invite you to come and know the Father. But sometimes... Our faith is more about justifying ourselves than God justifying us through Christ. Sometimes our faith is about putting others down who are genuinely struggling instead of pointing them to the hope that is Jesus. And so we may judge those who don't follow the way that we believe they should, or we may judge ourselves harshly when we fail, continually, perpetually, living in shame, in cycles of shame, instead of learning to come to the one who says, come to me, come to me, all who are weary, come to me, all who are broken. Come to me all who are sinful. Come to me all who messed up yesterday. 
Come to me, all that have been hiding. Come to me, all of you who have been trying to fix your life and find your purpose without me. Come to me, the one who is able to do for you what no one else can do. Because the gift of God is the gift of grace. The way in which God works, and this is what Paul is arguing, is not to reward you for the good that you've done, but to give you the good that you do not deserve because He loves and He cares. And so even today, as I stand before you as a pastor this morning, praying that God would grant me discernment with this text, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and asked me this one simple question. Thank you. Oh, my goodness, this reminds me of my daddy. Sweat all the time. <laughs> my, my, my mom used to bring him cloths all the time for his head. <laughs> the one simple question is, do you believe that grace is enough for you? Do you believe that? Um, <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I've said this before, and I, I, I'm year long enough that I can repeat my stories, and, but I also learned this. I, most of you don't remember my stories. <laughs> most of you leave here and you go, I, I, uh. you come next week, I say the same sermon, you go, ooh, that was great, leave. <laughs> But, but, but here's, here's, uh, here's a little bit of my life, and I use it only as an example. I was raised in an apartheid world, uh, political racial segregation, a world that defined value in terms of the complexion and the ethnicity of people. I use this example not to be exclusive because sometimes people go, well, I can't relate to that, although there are some here that can. That sometimes the world would say to us <clears throat> that our value is contingent upon all kinds of things. Uh, there's some of us who, for example, the, the issue of race and racism is very real. I, I, had, a, I had a lady, a young lady, beautiful black young lady a month ago, tell me, tell me how her two little daughters had experienced racism that week. Not hidden, overt. It's the kind of world we live in. And sometimes, you know, when we, uh, when we think about the church, we don't want to talk about hard things because it's easier to pretend these hard things are not real because they're tough to deal with. What does grace have to say with tough situations like that? How does the church respond to situations like that? In my own experience of life, that has been the biggest issue. That has been the issue that, that perhaps has made it hard for me to believe that God loves me in the skin I'm in. And I know what you're thinking. Man, he's so good-looking, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine that God wouldn't love him. 
I'm so glad you're laughing, because otherwise I would have sounded like the biggest narcissist in the world. <laughs> but there are so many of us that sit here, and maybe it's not race for you. There's something that keeps you from believing that God loves you for who you are. I'm convinced that without God's Holy Spirit, we don't understand grace because we are so impervious to believing that we can be loved without earning it. And so, as your pastor, Can I testify as I close? <laughs> Why are you going to say no? <laughs> I've got the mic. My heart's desire for this church has always been that grace would overflow in us and through us. Every day of the week, we are conditioned to measure love in terms of reward. In our marriages, with our children, in our jobs. We need Sunday mornings perhaps more than we realize because this is the place where we are told every week, you didn't earn this. You didn't work for this. There's a good God who loves you. And when such love begins to take hold in us, it gives us the capacity to become kind people. Where's kindness gone in our society? Where's forbearance? You know, that's the word that the New Testament uses for long-suffering. You know what forbearance is? Forbearance is more than just being patient. It's learned to suffer alongside others. It's learning to become a kind of people who exemplify in a world not the spirit of retribution or I gave you so you give me back. It is the ability to learn how to live in the ways of grace. I, I know I'm off script, Okay. But I have to say this to us as a church. It begins in the relationships that we already have. If you cannot receive grace from God, you will not know how to give grace to others. If you do not open your life to believe today that He loves you not on account of how smart you are or how much you've done or how much you've achieved or how much you have or how often you attend church, if you do not get to the bottom end of all of this and say, God has chosen to love me, the real me, in the misery and the condition I'm at, He doesn't want me to stay there, but He doesn't begin by expecting me to fix myself. He begins with where I'm truly at. And when I allow God to love me where I'm at, I'll be liberated to love others the way that I've been loved. And so, 
Are you saved by grace? That's just his way of saying amen. When you leave here, will it be like every other Sunday? We come, we hope it's a good service, and we hope it's a good sermon. In fact, I'm convinced of this, that, that the kids' minute is fast supplanting any other element in the church as the most favorite time in our worship service. And I'm completely okay with that. But we can go on living in a perpetual cycle of feeling either dissatisfied or judgmental. We can continue to live our lives either outside of the true grace of God that affirms within us what we most long for. Listen, I want you to hear me say this. I preach this with passion and conviction because I need to believe it and live it for myself. How about you? How about you? What would happen in your relationships at home if grace takes a hold in you today? I'm not asking how is your spouse going to change? I'm not asking how your child is going to change. I'm not asking you how your boss is going to change. I'm not asking you to explain to me the conditional nature of change for yourself. I'm, I'm asking that if you allow grace to liberate you, how will it change you? Father, we sit in these services so many times. We hear good and maybe not so good sermons, although we try. We sing songs affirming grace and we learn context and history of the scriptures. There's no doubt in my mind that there's many of us here who wants to love you well and love others well, but we have to admit, Lord, that sometimes our love is conditioned by poor examples. Though Abraham wasn't saved by keeping the law through circumcision, wasn't chosen because of his goodness, ah, the people in the early church remembered poorly. They somehow used him as a measurement for the exclusion of people. And in the meantime, as they looked at him as an example, they constantly felt like failures. For no one could keep all the commands except the one who was perfect. And so, Lord, I pray today bold enough to ask of you would you in this moment visit us personally and as a church? Pour out grace upon this congregation. Liberate those who are caught in bondage, in shame. Those who do not believe they're good enough. And humble the hearts of the proud. Those who believe that somehow on account of their goodness, they have been saved. 
And together, Lord, in this moment, may we now worship you, knowing that Jesus is our hope. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.